Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I've been writing about white women's politics for several years now. And one of the things I've noticed is that some of us, okay, maybe most of us, get a little bit defensive when this topic comes up. We feel the need to clarify that we're not, well, those white women. We'll say, I've been a Democrat my whole life, or I'd never vote for Donald Trump. I get it. As I've come to terms with the narrative I'd constructed about myself, the almost cringeworthy way that I made myself the heroine of my personal political story, the way I had viewed myself as special, I've had to question some uncomfortable, fundamental beliefs, like the belief in my own goodness. Growing up, I was largely unaware of the racial injustice that surrounded me. And even as an adult, I've lived something of a nice white lady life, selectively engaging in matters of race. Can I really say that's okay? And if there are millions more like me, millions of nice white ladies who might reject the politics of division and hate, but fail to really challenge the status quo, can we really say we're part of the solution? This is White Picket Fence, a podcast about the fractured, and often frustrating, politics of white women. I'm Julie Kohler, a writer and gender justice advocate. I've been writing about white women's politics since shortly after the 2016 election, when so many of us realized that we had not done enough, not merely in that election, but in helping to build a country that reflected the values we profess to hold. Last week, we talked about multiracial political coalitions transforming our politics. The tone was cautiously optimistic. We've seen examples of how organizing can have real electoral and policy impact. So what is holding us back? Today, on our final episode of White Picket Fence, we're going to turn the lens inward. We're going to examine progressive white women and the chasm between the values we hold and the policy changes that could make those values a reality. We'll explore what it takes to move from talk to action. To start, let's head back again to my childhood home state, Minnesota, in the city, Minneapolis, that I once thought of as sort of a progressive utopia. I've described my somewhat idyllic childhood in the Minnesota suburbs and the strong influence the state's historically progressive politics had on me. I'm not unique in my fondness for my home state. In a report from the Institute for Women's Policy Research, Minnesota was named the best state in the country for women, the second best for everyone to live in, according to WalletHub, a personal finance website that analyzes government databases. And Minneapolis ranked fifth in the list of WalletHub's most caring cities. Yes, there's an actual ranking for that. But that's not the full picture. Based on findings from the National Center for Education Statistics, Minnesota also ranked worst in the nation for racial disparities among high school graduation rates. 
second worst in racial disparities in income, according to census data. In the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, the poverty rate for African-American families is four times that of white households. And an NAACP report found that Black Minnesotans are 11 times more likely to be incarcerated. These inequalities became abundantly clear to people across the U.S. this past May, when a white police officer, a supposed public servant of the city, callously killed a Black man in broad daylight while staring down a crowd begging him to stop. This was not the first incident of its kind in Minneapolis. In response to George Floyd's murder, protests erupted around the country, and many progressive white women joined the cause. In some ways, speaking out against injustice is in our comfort zones as progressive white women. But do we hold ourselves accountable to our rhetoric? Betsy Hodges knows this dynamic well. She was an elected official in Minneapolis for 12 years, first as a city council member, then mayor. Uh, In 1992, in the wake of the verdict uh, quitting the officers who beat Rodney King, I made a decision that enrolling white people in the work of racial equity, not that I phrased it that way at the time, but enrolling white people in the work of racial equity was what, at least part of what I was here to do. And I made a decision to do that, and that decision has been guiding my life ever since. Betsy went to grad school, where she got a sociology degree and studied race and class. She realized that local government could be a powerful place to do community work. So I was working on local elections. I was embedding myself in my neighborhood and in my community in Minneapolis when I moved back there in 1998. And eventually people asked me to run for city council, and I said yes. Betsy was living in the southwest corner of Minneapolis, a largely white, wealthy part of the city. She was the first Democrat to represent the area in four election cycles. She ran on a platform of racial equity, and her victory was unexpected. Still, she won. And after eight years on city council, she decided to run for mayor. There came a point where it it was clear to me that if I really wanted to continue to pursue a racial equity agenda, if I wanted to pursue anti-racist policy change at the city level, that my one seat from Southwest Minneapolis on the city council was not going to get me where I wanted to go. And that I really needed that visible citywide platform. And I had a vision for the city that was really about making sure that everybody could participate in and benefit from the growth and prosperity of Minneapolis. Once again, people didn't expect Betsy to win. You know, I was up against some formidable opponents, 35 formidable opponents, as a matter of fact, a few of whom were considered the front runners in front of me. Uh, and yet still I won handily, doing a very having a very grassroots campaign. And I ran explicitly on a platform of racial equity, talking to white people about what was in it for us to do that work. I named whiteness. I talked to white people about whiteness. Uh, I talked to white people about what was in it for us to do the racial equity work. And the city was very thirsty for that conversation. Uh, white people in particular, I think were surprisingly open to that and really liked that message. Betsy did manage to enact change in Minneapolis. She championed a working families agenda, 
passing earned sick and safe time for all workers, and raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. But all of those voters who had embraced her message on the campaign trail, they were more resistant when it came to actually changing policy. What I overestimated was the true appetite for white liberals to do this work. People who are willing to say, yes, I believe in this. Yes, Mayor Hodges, go do this agenda. Uh, When push came to shove, they were actively working against the policies I was trying to pass. A lot of council members, for example, definitely fell into that category. Members of the business community uh, who really wanted to control how the agenda was played out. And it was through that that I realized, ah, okay, whiteness wants comfort. It doesn't want change. And the, the form that takes on the left is I want to feel better about the disparities that I see, but I don't want to feel so much better that uh, I'm actually required to change things, that I'm thrust into the discomfort of actual change. We all want to feel like we are good people, moral people. We profess to believe in equality. But the system we know to be unfair is also comfortable. It rewards our whiteness. To acknowledge the full extent of that privilege means admitting that our well-being comes at the cost of others. If we're inherently given a leg up, then parts of our success are unearned. This unsettling truth can lead to a lot of anti-racist talk, but not the requisite action. And when we do take action, it's too often trying to, as Betsy says, hack whiteness rather than really change it. It's how Betsy learned to govern as mayor. But if you're looking to do policy change, you're often having to hack whiteness. You're not actually transforming whiteness. And what I mean by that is you have to figure out how whiteness operates and then you have to I suggest on the front end, craft strategies to navigate through whiteness and how it's going to show up in the process. Meaning, if you know that white neighbors are going to object to the zoning change, have some strategies to address how they're going to object to it. Make sure that you have enough people on the front end to counteract the waves of upset middle-class liberal white people who are going to show up at your city hall objecting to what you're trying to do. Make sure that you have enough people organized to get that done. That's hacking whiteness. That's not transforming whiteness. The transformation happens after the policy is passed and people's attitudes about the policy change after they live with it. Betsy says that some transformation can occur as a result of those hacks, that once people experience more equitable policies, they can see how it improves things for everyone. But in order to accelerate change, to actually change the system, we also need to critically examine whiteness. Melanie Price is a professor at Prairie View A&M University and a contributor to the New York Times. She's dedicated much of her career to studying political rhetoric, the language we use to express our beliefs, the language politicians use to address different kinds of audiences, to try to push their agendas forward. In speaking with Melanie about white comfort in 2020, she suggested we look back to 2008, when Barack Obama became the first black president of the United States. There is a luxury of whiteness and that you don't have to think about race. Other people have race, 
white people do not. But there's no way when you're constantly having to reorder your thoughts about this black president and you see things happen in the White House and it's hip hop in the White House and you're having to figure out, wait a minute, where do I fit in this? Where does my whiteness fit in, in these images? And that's what it, the discomfort is about. That is the thing that they find difficult because they don't have to think about race. Me, I'm thinking about race all the time. From the time I wake up in the morning to the time I go to bed, I'm thinking about race. When I go to the Target and I need to buy band-aids that are flesh-colored, when I need to buy nude pantyhose that disappear into my skin, is that possible? No, because they're kind of pinkish. Because nude is also white. Like there are all kinds of ways that it gets reinforced for me that I am not white and thus I have to think about it a lot. And so it's those kinds of ways that people of color are constantly thinking about race and whites are not. And so when you force them to, they get really uncomfortable. Sometimes they become defensive, they act out. And so all the, the responses that we saw that emerged during this Trump moment are actually predictable when you try to get white people to seed just their place as the default in a multiracial democracy. Our cultural norm is whiteness. Most white people spend very little, if any time, in spaces where they are in the minority. I have found, having taught at predominantly white institutions for most of my career, that white people spend very little time as the racial minority in a space. That's true in their churches, that's true at work, that's true in their family life. I mean, I've been the, the only Black person in a room more times than I can count. So it doesn't, I mean, I note it when I come in. I look around. I think, typical. I move on with my life. I do not expect people in the room to acknowledge that I'm the only Black person there. I don't expect them to try to make the space um, more welcoming for me because I'm the only Black person there because it never happens. And in fact, if you point out that you're the only Black person there, people get defensive about why it's just you. But I have been in situations where you have had one white person show up to a Black event and they keep talking about how they're the only white person there. And they marvel at the fact that they're the only white person there. And then they have to explain to you how they knew some black people one time. Like, it's like it's a kind of racial information dump. And it's like, look, this happens to us all the time. All the time. And you need to get more practice at it happening to you, right? You need to get more practice at it happening to you. White people have to learn to live with the fact that there are places in this country where they might not be the majority and in fact might not be the center of attention. White people can make excuses for the homogeneous spaces that we find ourselves in. It's easy. We didn't do the hiring for the office. We didn't run the selection process for our colleges. But segregation doesn't just poof, happen. Our choices play a role. As an adult, I purchased a home close to a highly regarded public school for my son. This solidified segregated housing patterns formed through decades of redlining and predatory lending practices. My parents helped me with the down payment, giving my family an unearned leg up. 
Because of my housing choices, my family spends a good deal of time in a predominantly white neighborhood. My son, virtually these days, attends a predominantly white school. It shouldn't be the burden of people of color to educate white people about what it's like to have to think about race all the time. This is on us. We need to do the work. If the only time your children interact with people of color is in the service industry, or the person who comes to clean your house, or the guy who cuts your yard, what are they learning about Black people? If you spend the majority of your time in homogenous spaces, then the white privilege that you're learning, the bias that you're being indoctrinated with, it's coming in white spaces. But also, if you're getting all of that in majority white spaces, those are the people you should be talking to. That's the part of your life you should be interrogating. That's a lot of work for white people to be doing amongst themselves. And then when you feel like you have, you know, kind of gotten that part of your life under control, then maybe reach out to some Black people about it. But don't come to me and then I have to then explain how your white privilege works. I do know that we're all going to have to work harder in the spaces where we are. I don't go talk to white men about patriarchy because I'm really trying to fight the patriarchy of the men who I'm mostly in community with. And that's the, you know, the men in my family who are black. That's the men in my church who are black. Right. And so I don't hesitate to point out patriarchy to them because that's the space I'm in. And so are you hesitating when your husband says some shit about the fact that you just got a new black neighbor? Do you challenge those notions? Do you call the cops on every black person who is in your neighborhood? And the only way that you know they're out of place is because there are no black people there. Like those are the kinds of challenges that really are going to make the lived experiences of black people better. Living in largely homogeneous communities has allowed white people to look at racism as an emotional, mental, individual ailment. To claim that as an individual, I'm a good person. I'm not a racist. This framework allows us to avoid white discomfort. Here's Betsy Hodges again. You know, one of the tricks that whiteness has masterfully played since the civil rights movement is to get white people to think that racism is a personal feeling and a personal behavior. And that if we aren't feeling a certain way or behaving a certain way, that the systems then somehow magically are no longer rigged a certain way in our favor. The systems were set up to benefit white people I mean, full stop, right? This, we set the systems up for ourselves. And inherently, if the systems are set up based on our whiteness, then not only are they set up to benefit us, but it has to be at the cost of better outcomes for people of color and indigenous people. And until we change what the systems are for, to protect, preserve, and care for the comfort and convenience of white people, until we change what the systems are for, the systems are going to get those outcomes, whether we actively decide that we're going to participate in that or not. In other words, the systems are still going to function to get really great outcomes for white people at the cost of people of color and indigenous people, whether we have racial animus in our hearts or not. 
And so if we only define racism as having negative racial feelings in our hearts, then we are missing the point. Uh, and that's by design. We're so we, you know, whiteness has done a really good job of, of remolding our perception of what racism is so that it's a personal failing and that if we're accused of it, it's the worst thing we could be accused of. And we feel like we're being told we're inherently bad people, that our humanity is being judged rather than our whiteness being described. As people, we are taught to strive for goodness. We want to believe that we are moral. We want to do the right thing. That drives a lot of white progressive rhetoric. But then something gets in the way. Fear. One of the things that the conservative right has done very well is paint a picture of what the future looks like for white people. Their fearful picture of what the world looks like. They're very good from pulpits and from microphones and on radio and on Fox News. They're very good at saying, is this the world you want? It's a world where X, Y, and Z. And this is what it looks like for you in specific white person. Even if they don't say white person, they use the dog whistle politics so that white people, we know we're being talked to when they say whatever they're saying, right? They use all that language. So white people no, hey, you're painting a picture of the future for me. I do not like the picture of that future. They're also good at painting a picture of the past. And I like the picture of the past that you're painting for me. Both pictures are inaccurate. Uh, and the picture of the past is inaccurate. That's not actually what the past looked like for most white people. For most white people, there, our pasts would have been better in a world without racism. The right is really good at painting a picture for white people of what the world looks like for us uh, under different scenarios. On the left, we're terrible about doing that. On the left, we white people do not paint a picture for each other of a non-racist or anti-racist future that includes us and is good. Not only do progressives fail to paint a picture of what's possible, we don't know how to paint a picture of an anti-racist future that has white people in it. If people of color and indigenous people, if we set up the world so they can have really great life outcomes, we'll be setting up a world where we can have even better life outcomes too. And we are part of that future and part of that picture. It's just we're not the only part of that future. We're not the only part of that picture. We have taken our right-sized place in the human family once again. And that means we are not dominating people. We are not seeking to dominate people. And we're certainly not benefiting from the domination of other people and the oppression of other people. We are actually thriving because other people are thriving. And because progressives don't articulate that future, it leaves a lot of white people vulnerable to the fear that the right uses to divide. We've talked in previous episodes about how well the right utilizes that fear to galvanize white support. Betsy experienced this herself. In July of 2017, another Minneapolis resident was killed by a police officer in Minneapolis. The victim, Justine Damond, was a white woman, and the officer, Mohammed Noor, was Somali-American. That November, Betsy lost her race for re-election. I lost by 600 votes, and that shooting happened in that very white, wealthy part of Minneapolis, where I had, I had been an elective representative of them for 12 years, eight of them as the city council member. That was essentially my neighborhood. I think I lost in part because a lot of folks there got 
very scared about policing issues in a way that had not hit home for them before. So that's just a very telling moment for me. We are at a moment in history where we could make real progress. I think for a lot of us who grew up reading about the civil rights movement, it might be surprising to hear that the mass demonstrations this summer were the largest racial justice protests in American history. National support for Black Lives Matter surged to 70%. Bookstores struggled to keep books on white fragility and anti-racism in stock. But now we're at a crossroads. How can we learn from this and move forward better? How do we stop being nice white ladies, the kind of white liberals who talk the talk but ultimately support the status quo? Melanie says one place to start is in the teachings of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., specifically to a concept that he introduced in his famous mountaintop speech, delivered to a group of sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, the day before he was assassinated. In 1968, Martin Luther King is in and out of Memphis to work on the uh, striking sanitation, the Black sanitation workers in Memphis who were all Almost all the workers were Black, and it was completely supervised by whites. On the way to Memphis for the mountaintop speech, the FBI notified the airlines that there was a credible threat against the airplane that he was flying on. So his, his life was like becoming more under threat. He was exhausted. He shows up in Memphis. He doesn't feel well. They're having this meeting because they have the mass meetings before the marches. So he decides not to go. Ralph Abernathy begs him to come down and he comes and he gives like one of the most amazing speeches. He has this refrain that sounds like he is seeing his own death. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. But, you know, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land and I may not get there with you, but I promise we will all get there together. He's allowed me to go up to the mountain. I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the that we as a people will get to the promised land. And then he's assassinated the next day. And so I'm showing that to my class, like right around Trump's inauguration in 2017. I'm showing it to my class and while they're watching it, I'm also trying to craft this speech that I had said I would give to this like church on the Upper East Side in New York, like a white Episcopal church about, you know, life after Obama, which I don't even know what that's, you know, gonna look like. And so in that speech, Martin Luther King says this other thing that really grips me, where he talks to the people there about, you know, we can't be thinking about how this is gonna impact us. We know that these sanitation workers are, it's a thousand men. So most of you are not directly implicated in their experiences. But you have to be willing to do things about other people than yourself. And he says, you have to practice a kind of dangerous unselfishness. 
Dangerous unselfishness. We can't sit outside the fight. We need to join in. There isn't such a thing as being apolitical or not involved in our system of white supremacy. And those of us who profess to care, we need to change our practice, actively cede privilege. And so my question really for white women, for white people is, why do you have to see so much black loss before you believe us? That the system is rigged. And when you believe us, one of the things you're going to have to realize is that's going to require a seeding of privileges. Because the complement of your privilege is my disadvantage. And you cannot keep your privilege and expand my privilege. It's impossible. It's not just seeding space. It's not just writing checks, although we'll take the checks. I mean, we have projects that could use them. It's not just that. It's also you have to seed privilege. You have to give it up. And if you're not willing to actually give up some of that stuff, then you're not really, in my opinion, uh, really interested in, in, in the success of the project. Ultimately, you are a person who is affirming white privilege and white supremacy. There's nothing really that I can actually do to help you. Over the course of these six episodes, we've looked at how white supremacy has been built into our political and legislative systems. As white women, it's not about stepping into the issue. We're already in it. We've always been in it. It's a function of our privilege that we are able to feel awakened. Betsy Hodges looks to build a better future using three premises. The first one is that it is the work of white people to work with other white people toward anti-racist policy change. That like, it's white people work to do that. Racism is a white people problem. It's many other things, but it is a white people problem. The second premise is that Compassion, understanding that we've all been trained into these systems, reaching for the humanity of the person. Love is probably the most sustainable organizing principle we have. Blame, attack, and criticism, and fear, and anger, and shame as white people is not going to get us sustainable social change. And that those two together means white people have to work with each other on the basis of love and compassion if we're really going to change things. Those aren't the only things that need to happen, but I do think that needs to happen. And right now, the only secular framework that white people have to work with each other based on compassion and love is white supremacy. That's the language, and it is a language of hate, but for many people, they also experience it as a language of love. And so the question I ask is, what framework can we create for white people to work with other white people on the basis of compassion and love without condoning or appearing to condone the racism on which the identity is based? That is an enduring question that I am endeavoring to answer, that I invite everybody to think about and question all three of those premises and if you have an answer to the question or thoughts about an answer to the question to to engage with that i think that will that will help us 
There's no neat, easy way to conclude this series because we're at the beginning of a path of reckoning. Too often, strides towards racial justice happen in short spurts because white people get tired of facing discomfort. We have to join the marathon and stop trying to make it a sprint. We need to ask ourselves where our actions don't meet our stated values. We need to acknowledge where we've made excuses in the name of wanting what's best for ourselves and our children over the opportunities of others and their children. I began this series by rewriting my political story, challenging assumptions about the supposed goodness of my own progressive politics. That was an important first step, but going forward, I need to be doing more, finding other ways to interrogate whiteness and committing to practice dangerous unselfishness. I want to show up differently in my community, challenging the privilege that accompanies my family's life in a predominantly white neighborhood in a highly segregated city, my son's experiences in a predominantly white school. And I want to talk more with others who are committed to doing the same, to getting involved, to doing the work, to owning our stake in building what Langston Hughes described as the America that never has been yet and yet must be. We all need to do that work, to imagine a different kind of future, and then get busy in helping to build it. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley and Edie Allard. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. You can follow me on Twitter at Julie K. Kohler1. Are you exhausted from trying to do everything perfectly? Do you hold yourself back because you're scared of failure? Then I'm going to tell you about a podcast you should be tuning into. You can break away from the cult of perfection by subscribing and listening to Brave Not Perfect. It's hosted by Reshma Sujani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, and author of the international bestseller, Brave Not Perfect. Join Reshma as she shares her secrets about bravery and success, because she wants to help you fear less, fail more, and live bolder. She'll even answer your questions and give you tips about how to get a little braver every day. Subscribe to Brave Not Perfect wherever you listen to podcasts.